Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, how are you doing? I'm great, Zach. Welcome back, everyone. This is SCOTUS 101 on the road. So if our microphone sounds a little funny, please forgive us. We're in New York City for an event this week, uh, but we're happy to be back because the court is back in action. GC, we got a little sad news uh, these past weeks uh, with the passing of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who I'm sure many of our listeners know was the first woman appointed to the court. Uh, and while no one probably agreed with all of her opinions while she served on the court, the outpouring of support for her family and friends in the wake of her death has been very moving to see. Yes, it has. Zach, courts moving full ahead with orders. Can you walk us through those? Yeah, we actually got our first opinion of the term, uh, which shouldn't have come as a surprise, but it came a little early to me, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. uh, the first opinion was in Atchison Hotels versus Lawfer. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Barrett where the court vacated the case's moot. Now, as a reminder, Deborah Lawfer served as an American with Disabilities Act tester. She would go online, search hotel listings, and sue those hotels who did not provide the required accessibility information, even if she had no intention of staying at that hotel. Doing this, she single-handedly generated a circuit split. That's that's an impressive feat, yeah, you see. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but she single-handedly generated a circuit split on whether she had standing or the legal ability to bring these types of suits. The 2nd, 5th, and 10th circuits said that she lacked standing, but the 1st, 4th, and 11th circuits held that she did have standing, so the court took this case out of the 1st circuit to resolve this issue. But after the court granted cert, the case took an unusual turn, as Justice Barrett put it in her opinion. Essentially, one of Lawford's attorneys in the lower courts was subject to disciplinary action and accused of engaging in a host of ethically problematic conduct. Because of this, Lawford voluntarily dismissed her lawsuit against Atchison Hotels in the district court and filed a suggestion of mootness with the U.S. Supreme Court. The court agreed to defer its decision on mootness until after argument. Because mootness and standing are both jurisdictional issues, the court could decide the case on either ground because it can address jurisdictional issues in any order it chooses. So while the court said it was sensitive to Atchison's concern about litigants manipulating the jurisdiction of the court in an effort to avoid a potentially unfavorable decision, it said it was not convinced that Lawford abandoned her case in an effort to evade review. As a result, it vacated the judgment and ordered the case remanded to the First Circuit to be dismissed as moot, consistent with its practice established in the 1950 case of United States versus Munsingware. This is known as Munsingware vacature, where the lower court's judgment is vacated when the case becomes moot pending appeal. Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment, saying that he would have decided the case on standing grounds instead of mootness and would have found that Lawford did not have standing. Justice Jackson concurred in the judgment, but took issue with the court's practice of Munsingware vacature, saying that mootness and vacature are distinct concepts and that, in her view, absent any harm-related justification for vacating a lower court's opinion, the court should usually leave it undisturbed. In this case, she believed that the parties had not provided any equitable basis for vacating the Court of Appeals judgment. Yeah, interesting. So this case, I bet, or a case just like it is coming back. Uh, it's good to see that the Supreme Court has 
said, you know, we're not going to tolerate a gamesmanship on the mootness issue. Um, so stay tuned for more ADA disability cases. It will be interesting to see what the court does uh, with these types of cases. That gets us to oral arguments, GC. There were several cases uh, the court heard in oral arguments over the past few weeks. Uh, why don't you start us out with SEC versus Jarkazy? Yeah, we'll do. So this case involves a challenge to in-house tribunals at executive agencies under the Seventh Amendment. Now, this isn't a, a writ large challenge. We're not challenging uh, the constitutionality of these uh, in-house tribunals in general, but only with respect to certain kinds of cases. So Mr. Jarkasi here was investigated uh, and hauled before an SEC in-house tribunal for securities fraud. And in defense, what he said is that under the Seventh Amendment, uh, any cases at common law have to be tried before a jury. Fraud uh, is a common law crime, securities fraud, basically the same thing in a specific context. And so he needs to have a jury trial, not an in-house tribunal. The case really comes down to a fight over a particular case called Atlas Roofing. And Atlas Roofing said that uh, as long as what's at issue is a so-called public right, that is a right that Congress creates, and not one that exists, say, from the common law, then you're not in the realm of the Seventh Amendment. The Supreme Court, though, seemed pretty skeptical of the policy or the legal correctness of Atlas Roofing and was very concerned that Congress could create all sorts of new public rights to evade the, the Seventh Amendment jury trial requirement. But critically, uh, Mr. Jarkasi in the lower courts did not raise uh, a challenge to Atlas Roofing itself. So you had a court that at all arguments seemed sympathetic to Mr. Jarkasi's claims, but at the same time was concerned about overruling Atlas Roofing when it hadn't specifically been requested. So how that case turns out, uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, this could be another one in the series of cases that could impact the administrative state, how matters are currently handled in administrative agencies as opposed to Article Three courts. Uh, and so I think there's certainly a lot more to be said on that front later in this term with Loper Bright and the Relentless case Absolutely. and the series of other admin law cases the court seems to have taken up recently. That brings us to the next oral argument, Harrington versus Purdue Pharma. This is an interesting case involving an issue of bankruptcy law. Now, the facts of this case stem from the opioid crisis and opioid-related litigation against Purdue Pharma, which is the manufacturer of OxyContin. Now, many of you may remember OxyContin is a very powerful opioid. It was initially marketed by Purdue Pharma as not being particularly addictive, as being a good alternative to other types of opioids and potentially addictive medications. But as we all know, it is very addictive and can be very harmful when used inappropriately. Because of this, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, which owned Purdue Pharma for many, many years, were facing a number of tort lawsuits, both from individuals and from states. Because of this, Purdue Pharma declared bankruptcy and entered into a plan of reorganization. Now, there were some unique factual circumstances uh, related to this bankruptcy, but it quickly became apparent that Purdue Pharma would not be able to pay out all the claims against it. And so to help complete a successful bankruptcy plan, the Sackler family agreed to contribute billions of dollars uh, to the bankruptcy estate to help resolve these claims in exchange for being released from further liability. Now, many uh, of the 
claimant in this bankruptcy estate, both the states and individual litigants, agreed to this. They recognized it was the best resolution they were likely to get because pursuing individual claims can be very difficult, very time consuming. There are issues about recovery. Uh, but the U.S. trustee, who serves as the watchdog for bankruptcy cases in the United States, objected to this, essentially saying that the Sacklers were getting the benefit of bankruptcy without having to themselves declare bankruptcy or put all of their property into the bankruptcy estate. And so one of the particular issues involved in this case is whether the bankruptcy court had the authority under 11 U.S.C. 1123 B6, which serves as a catch-all provision uh, and says a bankruptcy court can include any other appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of the bankruptcy code in a confirmed plan, whether the bankruptcy court could confirm this plan or whether this particular setup violated the bankruptcy's code. is an interesting argument. It went about an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, it was very difficult to tell where ideologically some of the justices would fall on this issue. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh seems sympathetic to what Purdue Pharma and the Sackler families and even the victims who are advocating confirmation of this plan said. Justice Barrett, Justice Gorsuch uh, seems somewhat more skeptical of this, as did Justice Jackson. Justice Jackson in particular took issue uh, with the way the Sackler family had set up their assets. Many of their assets are an offshore spendthrift trust, which makes them very difficult to levy against or uh, obtain any redress against. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what the court does with this case. And I think coming out of oral argument, it is not clear uh, where all of the justices exactly will fall. Mm-hmm. One other interesting thing I'll quickly mention, GC, the chief justice asked whether this would be a good instance to apply the court's major questions doctrine. Uh, this is somewhat unique in that we're, that the justices are reviewing the power of a bankruptcy court under the bankruptcy code, whereas traditionally the major questions doctrine has been applied uh, when looking at the authority that executive branch agencies can exercise right. under their enacting uh, statutes. So stay tuned. A lot more to be said on this front when the court decides the case. And then last up was Moore versus the United States. This is the so-called wealth tax case. The tax that the Moors are challenging, though, isn't itself a wealth tax, strictly speaking, but it uses the same mechanism as Democrats' wealth tax proposals because it taxes unrealized gains. Those are gains that exist only on a balance sheet and over which the taxpayer has no control. The Moors invested in a startup in India that supplied American-made farm equipment to Indian farmers. It turned out that this was an unfulfilled need in India, and the company did well almost from the get-go. But to meet the demand, the company needed to grow, so it reinvested all of its profits. The value, at least on paper, of the Moore's investment increased as the company grew, but the Moore's never received any dividends. What's more, as minority shareholders, they had no ability to force the company to pay any dividends. So things are going well. Fast forward 12 years, the IRS comes knocking and tells the Moore's that under a recently enacted tax, they owe the government a share of the company's reinvested earnings proportional to their ownership stake in the company. The only problem, the Moors don't have that money. They've never had that money. The company reinvested all of it. Uh, But ultimately, the IRS forced them to pay taxes on about $130,000 of unrealized, quote-unquote, income. I say, quote-unquote, because that is the question at the heart of the case. Is our unrealized gains income within the meaning of the 16th Amendment, uh, which is an exception to the general constitutional rule 
that the federal government can't impose direct taxes. It can, however, of course, on income. Now, the Moors say that the original public meaning of income in 1913, which is when the amendment was ratified, includes the element of realization. The government, of course, says it doesn't. They fight over some case law, some original public meaning. But why the case has attracted so much attention is because, as Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger conceded at oral arguments, if income does not include a realization element, then the federal government can tax any unrealized gains it wants. If your stock market portfolio has increased by December 31st, you're going to pay taxes on that. If, however, it crashes the next day, January 1, well, come April 15, you're still on the hook for the gain. The justices were very unsettled, it seemed, overall, with the potential implications of going both ways. Justice Alito, I think, was most explicitly concerned about the unlimited nature of taxing unrealized gains. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Prelogger, the Solicitor General, tried very hard to point to other parts of the tax code which could potentially be thrown into doubt by a ruling this way or that. Well, two things I'll say quickly about that, GC. One of the interesting things I thought about this case is it gave an opportunity for the justices and the advocates and for all of us, really, to see originalism applied in a context outside of those we're typically accustomed to seeing it, either at the founding or the passage of the 14th Amendment, because a lot of the debate surrounded the original meaning of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed in the early 20th century. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, kind of aspect to this. The other thing I would say is Andrew Grossman uh, argued for the Moors. He's over at Baker Hostetler. I believe this is Andrew's first uh, Supreme Court oral argument, and I thought he did a fantastic job. Yeah, he did. Kudos to Andrew for a, a job well done. Yep. That's it for oral arguments this week. Next up, my interview with Judge Andrew Brasher right after this. As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas, bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high-profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we are joined today by 11th Circuit Judge Andrew Brasher. Judge, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Absolutely. So, Judge, what first sparked your interest in the law? Yeah, so I'm one of these guys that got interested in the law in high school, doing debate, doing mock trial. You know, I, I... I guess, I guess to back up, you know, I'm one of the people that like when you're a kid and your parents would say, well, you sure do like arguing with people, you know, you should be a lawyer. (laughs) And so I've, I was sort of on a, I'm going to law school track really early on. I think, I mean, you know, as a junior in high school, I I intended to go to law school. And so that was kind of always my plan. Mm. And it was really nothing more than, you know, being involved in debate and mock trial and things like that, that sort of um, made me think that one, uh, I really enjoy this kind of stuff. And two, this could actually be something that I was good at. 
So when you got to law school, did you find that it lived up to your expectations or was it very different? <laughs> you know, I, so I, I guess I should say, so I, I went to a small Baptist school in Birmingham, Alabama for undergrad, and I went to Harvard Law School. So there was like serious culture shock for me from going from Samford University, which is a uh, a Southern Baptist school in Birmingham, to go to Harvard Law School. But, you know, it actually, I mean, you know, I will say I didn't get a lot of the practice experience that I thought I, you sort of got in law school, right? Like I thought mm-hmm. like everybody there would be running around wanting to do debate and like stand up in front of people and stuff like that. And that wasn't the case at all. But as far as going to Harvard Law School, it absolutely lived up to the I mean, I, I was just, you know, I was one of these people in law school where I went to like the first year I I went to like every event, right. (laughs) To see every speaker. It was just so interesting and engaging to me to sort of like be put in this world where you could see all of these amazing speakers have amazing professors. I mean, Elena Kagan was the Dean at the time. Mm. Like it was just really wild, the kinds of people that I was able to meet and associate with in law school. So I really, I'm, I really, really enjoyed my law school experience. So your first job out after law school, clerking for Judge Bill Pryor, now the chief judge of your circuit, what was your clerkship for him like? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was great. It was a standard clerkship, I guess, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the kind of the, the ins and outs and the day to day, you know, one of the thing that, that I tell my clerks about clerking for, for Bill Pryor is that when he was, when I clerked for him, he was a relatively new judge. I mean, he'd only been on the court for, I think two years at the time I clerked for him. And so a lot of the stuff that, that, I kind of look back on now and I think about, you know, that was actually the first time that he ever did whatever it is. And, you know, he was, he really was, I don't, this wasn't apparent to me at the time, you know, he was learning his job and his role at the same time I was clerking for him. And so, you know, I think, you know, now he's my chief judge and, you know, he's obviously a very well-respected judge uh, just generally. And, you know, what a, what a special time it was for me to be able to work for him while he was kind of new at it. So, you know, it was, but it was a great experience, you know, a lot of research and writing, a lot of, you know, debating with co-clerks about what the right answer should be in any particular case. And just, you know, no complaints about the clerkship. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I am prepping for these interviews, I'm lucky enough to find a clerk or former clerk of the judge that I'm interviewing who is willing to tell me some funny, sometimes embarrassing stories about the judge. So this is your chance to rib your former boss, if you if you want, you have any fun stories about Judge Pryor? You know, I, I don't really have any fun stories. I don't think the the one thing that strikes me when when thinking about that question is, you know, like I said, he was he was kind of new when I was clerking for him, and I remember. So in the 11th Circuit, we sit in a lot of different places. We sit in Atlanta and in Montgomery and in Jacksonville, Florida. But like the good sitting, the, the fun one that everybody wants to do is the Miami sitting <laughs> for obvious reasons. I mean, anytime you can get your employer to pay you to stay on the beach in Miami, like that's a, that's a good sitting. And I was with him for his first Miami sitting as a judge. And so, we, you know, not embarrassing necessarily, but just like one thing that stands out in my mind about that clerkship is going with Judge Pryor to Miami 
being, you know, two guys walking around, two like legal nerds walking around Miami <laughs> Beach wearing our suits, like kind of sticking our heads in these nightclubs to kind of like see what was going on in there and then just being like, this is obviously not for us. So that's that's one of one of my fondest memories is kind of, you know, r- rambling around Miami Beach with Judge Pryor after a, after a sitting and, uh, you know, and realizing that, you know, these these nightclubs were not not designed for folks like us. <laughs> So I have to confess, you are yourself not immune from law clerks revealing secrets. And uh, one of yours told me that I should ask you what you thought of becoming a judge at the end of your clerkship with Judge Pryor. Yes. So this is, this is something that my co-clerk, some of my co-clerks remind me of on occasion, which is that I said – and I remember this. I don't remember it, I think, as well as my co-clerks do. But I remember this sort of after the clerkship, people sitting around talking. And, and one of my co-clerks in particular said, you know what, this is the best legal job we're ever going to have, being law clerks. And if I had the opportunity to come back and be a judge, like, I would just love that opportunity. And I remember very well saying, are you kidding me? This would not be fun at all. You know, like I, I want to go litigate. I want to, like I said, I want to stand up and argue cases. I want to be in front of people. And so this, like the whole idea of being a judge was just completely unappealing. I was, I was so ready. And I think, you know, I think part of it was just like, I was so ready to be a lawyer. You know, I, I, like, like I said, like I'd been kind of on this lawyer path for so long that even though the clerkship was a great experience, you know, I was ready to actually achieve the thing that I was trying to achieve, which is to be Mm -hmm. a lawyer. So anyway, my co-clerks also rib me because they say, you know, what is, what, what's the difference? Well, you were a lawyer for 12 years and then you realize like, oh, that's not as good as it's all cracked out to be. So <laughs> you should try to be a judge. <laughs> so you did indeed become a lawyer, went back to Birmingham, worked at Bradley Arant, I believe is how it's pronounced. That's how it's pronounced. You did a all great right, job. Excellent. Brad, Bradley Arant, Boot, Boot and Cummings. <laughs> yeah, I, you did good enough. <laughs> start, started off well and, and uh, was downhill from there. Well, what did you do there? Yeah, so I had a great opportunity there. So so specifically, I left the clerkship to go work for a guy at Bradley named Kevin Newsom, who I had met. I had actually met Kevin Newsom before I'd even clerked for Judge Pryor. I'd met him at, at Harvard one time, and he was the Solicitor General of Alabama at the time. And so he was kind of rolling off his position as SG of Alabama at the same time I was rolling off my clerkship. And so went to Bradley with the hopes of working for him. He was a partner at the time, kind of a new partner, and did a lot of really interesting stuff, both with Kevin and with other partners at the firm. You know, a lot of stuff that we did was was just kind of standard, like, defense stuff, right? Represented some pharmaceutical companies, represented some construction companies. But the thing that was, I think, probably the most important for like the later years of my life was a partner at the firm represented the governor of Alabama. And so I got really involved in in some litigation representing the governor. And that really helped me, I think, make the transition to state government that I ultimately made. Mm -hmm. And also just was just super fascinating litigation that I really enjoyed. You know, what I, I what I told the governor one time, which he got a real kick out of this, is I said, like, you know, the kind of clients you want are people with really complicated and difficult legal problems who have the money to actually pay you to fix them. <laughs> and and that was the governor of Alabama. He had he had was sued constantly in his position as governor and, and you know and was willing to pay lawyers to help him fix the problems. So mm-hmm. it was it was a great opportunity for a young associate. 
You ended up, after a few years, going into the Solicitor General's office as Deputy Solicitor General of Alabama. What prompted that change? Yeah, so I had always, you know, talking about the kind of leaving the clerkship thing and not wanting to be a judge, I had always wanted to be the Solicitor General of Alabama. Mm-hmm. As soon as I found out that that job existed, that was a job that I wanted. And I was in a really fortuitous position at that time because there was a new attorney general who had just been elected, who was a former partner of the firm that I worked at. And he had hired to to be his solicitor general, one of the partners that I worked with most frequently at that firm. And so, you know, when he became attorney general and hired this guy named John Nyman, who's now a partner at, at a firm in Birmingham, to be his SG, you know, I immediately thought, like, this is a group of people that I want to work with, and this may be my opportunity to have my dream job eventually, being Solicitor General of Alabama. So mm-hmm. that was, it was an e you know, in certain respects, it was a hard call because I really enjoyed working at the firm, but in other respects, it was kind of an easy decision to make because it was an opportunity to get one step closer to kind of my dream job. Mm-hmm. What sort of work did you do as deputy? Yeah, so the Alabama SG's office at the time was set up where... There was the Solicitor General, and then there were two deputies, and then there were sort of a – there was kind of a fellow involved, you know, like an assistant position that was kind of filled on a short-term basis. And so it's a a relatively small office. And so I worked on, you know, some really fascinating stuff. I I did some trial-level constitutional litigation. I helped the SG prepare for one merits case in the Supreme Court, Miller versus Alabama, mm. which is a case about juvenile life without parole. I argued a couple of cases in the Alabama state courts in the 11th Circuit. You know, at the time, and I suspect it's still this way, Alabama really was a defendant in a lot of litigation. There was not a lot of sort of plaintiff's side stuff, mm. but I also did work on some plaintiff's type stuff, uh, suing the federal government and, and other things like that. So it was just, you know, I mean, from my perspective, it was just fascinating and super interesting. Hmm. So you did indeed get your dream job. 2014, you're appointed Solicitor General. How did that, how did that change come about? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the gist of it is that John, the SG at the time, went back to private practice and, you know, there was sort of a battlefield promotion made of me to be Mm -hmm. SG. And, you know, and and it was something that I'd wanted and something that the AG had sort of said that, look, if everything works out, this will happen for you. So, yeah. How did the job change from deputy to solicitor general? Yeah. So the main change from my perspective at the time was that, you know, when I was deputy, I was sort of working with Annette, right? I had a boss who was Mm. really the one who was making the decisions on the litigation. When I became SG, there really was no sort of day-to-day supervisor for me. You know, the attorney general and the chief deputy were there and they managed the office. But as far as litigation decisions, they were ultimately my call and made, you know, along with the team of lawyers, of course, but I mean, it was ultimately me making the decisions. And so that, you know, you might not think about it, but that actually makes, that's a pretty significant change to go from being someone who's kind of relying on someone else to be the wise one in the room and, Mm -hmm. you know, tell you what to do to then being put in the position of no, like you're the one who has to, has to make these calls. So that was the main difference. You know, the other thing I guess I would say is 
as deputy, I really didn't have to deal with managing other attorneys in the office. I didn't have to deal with kind of supervising the work of other lawyers. I could just be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I became SG, I had to dedicate a substantial amount of my time not to kind of handling my own cases, but to supervising other lawyers and helping them with their cases. What were some of the cases that you worked on? Yeah, so, you know, I still look back on this and think that it's amazing that I got to do the litigation that I got to do when I was SG of Alabama. So I argued three cases in the United States Supreme Court, argued about 20 cases in the 11th Circuit and, you know, a handful in Alabama's Supreme Court. The way the SG's office has kind of traditionally run in Alabama is the SG is the one who is in charge of the litigation in Alabama's highest appellate court, Alabama Supreme Court, the 11th Circuit, and the U.S. Supreme Court. And the SG is sort of supposed to touch every case in those courts, you know, whether it's kind of reviewing the briefs, directing the legal arguments, or actually handling them themselves. So, you know, I got to do a lot of my own kind of litigation, but I also just got to touch all sorts of other cases that were primarily handled by other lawyers. Um, You know, apart from the appellate stuff, I also got involved. One of the cases argued in the United States Supreme Court was a redistricting case, and then that came back down on remand. And so I ended up working really heavily in that redistricting case uh, on remand in front of a three-judge court. I got to do some other kind of like trial-level litigation. I thought trial-level litigation was kind of fun, and so I would occasionally kind of parachute into that, mess it up, and then give it to some of the lawyers <laughs> to try to handle. So I got to do some constitutional litigation about that. One of the things that I kind of carried over from from deputy is a case that I handled defending Alabama's campaign finance laws from a First Amendment challenge. And so I argued that case actually twice in the 11th Circuit. We had we lost it in a district court when I was deputy SG. We got the district court reversed, and then we won on remand, and then I argued it again in the 11th Circuit as SG. So just really, you know, the kind of the, the gamut of, of appellate litigation. So you served as the SG for about five years before President Trump nominated you to the Middle District of Alabama. At that point, had you changed your mind about not wanting to be a judge? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. You know, I will say the thing about the Solicitor General of Alabama position is it's ultimately a short-term position. I mean, you know, there's no no requirement that you leave, but you just kind of burn yourself out at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. I mean, that's – it's that kind of job. So – I was kind of ready to move on to do something else. And the the idea of being a district court judge in particular, I know we're eventually going to get to my job now, but like the idea of being a district court judge in particular sort of came about to me because I thought, you know, I like court. I like being in court. You know, like I said, I sort of, that was that was kind of the way I was approaching the law generally. Like I wanted to stand up in front of people and, and argue cases and things like that. And... And I thought, you know, if I could be involved in in trials, in courtroom proceedings as a district judge, then I think that would kind of scratch that itch sufficiently mm-hmm. to make me happy. And also, yeah, I mean, you know the way these things work. I mean, just like things sort of fall out of the sky and you just get uh, lightning strikes you and you just get sort of called upon that, you know, hey, there's an opening and someone wants you to actually be the person that they put in that position. Mm. And so when that, when stuff like that happens, I, you know, I, I believe in Providence. I believe that there is a plan for our lives. And so it's hard to 
deny that when it happens. So a lot of it, you know, was, it was something that I was interested in, but a lot of my decision to transition from lawyer to judge was that it seemed like it was the thing that I should do. Mm. So you were a district court judge, but for only about a year before you were then nominated to the 11th Circuit. What, how was that quick turnaround for you? Yeah, it was not what I would have imagined or wanted, frankly. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I think being a district court judge is a great job and really, really does. It's sort of like the intersection of a lot of things that lawyers do, right? So, I mean, you're, you actually talk to people, you're in court every day, you're, you're making decisions that affect people's lives, but you're also, you know, managing cases, you know, you're, it's not, it's not the kind of pure legal job that I have now. It's also kind of a people job. And so I really liked doing that for the year that I did it. But, you know, once again, it's just kind of one of these things where when lightning strikes you, you have to, you know, you you have to accept the position. Mm -hmm. So I, I had thought as a district court judge, I mean, I was 38 when I was appointed to be a district court judge. I thought like, well, look, this is, I'm either doing this for the rest of my life or at some point, someone is going to call me and say, do you want to go to the court of appeals? I did not think that was going to be three months after my investiture (laughs) as a district court judge, but I had sort of thought that's a possibility. And so once again, when that happens, you know, you, you have to carefully think about whether you're going to accept that position. And I thought about it and, and I did. So. What was it like taking a seat on the court with your former boss, Judge Pryor? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, frankly, one of the most meaningful things about the position that I currently have is that this is the, this is where I started my legal career, right, as a law clerk, and that my chief judge is my former boss who gave me my first legal job. So it's, I mean, I can't really, it's, it's difficult to put into words what that's like, but I'll say even more than that, like, you know, the 11th Circuit really is sort of a home for me in the sense that I argued tons of cases here. I, you know, I'd argued a case, I argued twice in every 11th Circuit courthouse before uh, I left to be a judge. I knew most of the judges, you know, so like, for example, some other judges on the circuit, like I said, Kevin Newsom, who Mm -hmm. I worked with in private practice as a judge on the 11th Circuit, Brett Grant, who was the Solicitor General of Georgia at the same time I was the Solicitor General of Alabama on the 11th Circuit. So my colleagues, you know, these it's not as if I joined a circuit where I didn't already know the people and kind of the ways of the circuit. So like I said, it, it felt very like kind of coming home. Hmm. Did, so did Judge Pryor know that all those years ago you hated the idea of being a judge? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, okay. I don't think so. But I will tell you, I don't think that he would have been surprised because I think he would have thought, you know what, this, this guy wants to be a lawyer uh, hmm. at the time. I think that's probably would have been his take as well. Can you compare for us being a district versus circuit judge? Sure. And I mean, I think a lot of people have different theories about the differences between the two. You know, what I will say is a district judge job, at least the way I saw it and the way I did it for a short period of time, involves a lot of things that are really not legal in nature. They're administrative. They're managing. Hey, let me let me give you an example. So... Mm-hmm. One before one of my very first trials as a district judge, I was sitting in my office, 
and I was reviewing some papers and things. I mean, this was the day, the first day of trial. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm a little nervous. It's like my second trial. It's a criminal trial. And so it's 7.30 or something, and I'm kind of getting ready. And a deputy U.S. marshal, like, runs into the office and says, Judge, Judge, the defendant just tried to hit his attorney, and the attorney is asking us to put him in handcuffs and in leg restraints. What do we do? And so there is no like legal answer to that question. There might be, but I didn't know it, right? There is no sort of legal – that's not a legal question. You're, you're sort of making a judgment call about how this trial is going to be handled. I mean, what do I do about the fact that the defendant hates his attorney enough to try to punch him, right? You know, there are a lot of things that happen over the course of litigation as a district judge where you just sort of use your best judgment and you, may, you have to make the decision because there's no one else around to make the decision. But it's not really a law decision. It's a judgment decision. Whereas the Court of Appeals is not like that. There are no sort of judgment calls, I don't think. I mean, there are, the questions that we resolve are ultimately legal questions. And there is no sense that, like, we have to resolve this right now, this instant, because if we don't, something is going to happen mm-hmm. where you're thoughtful about it and you have, I mean, people can, I guess, complain about how long appeals take, but really you have plenty of time to make the right legal decision. So to me, that's the, that's the main difference is as a district judge, I was really doing a lot of, you know, like I say, kind of administrative judgment stuff where you're deciding not because you're necessarily learned in the law, but you're deciding it because someone has to decide. Whereas with the Court of Appeals, there is a right answer to every question. And your job is to spend the time and do the research and kind of find that right answer. And so it's it's sort of on a day-to-day basis, they're very different. But I think just kind of like the way you think about the job as a judge is also just very different. How did you decide that issue with the the defendant? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I said, well, this was, I think this was my second criminal trial, first criminal trial. I can't remember. But, but yeah, I said, well, I... I'm not gonna hold. I'm not gonna hold a trial with a defendant who tries, who's trying to punch his uh, attorney during the during the during the trial. So yeah, we we put him in, put him in handcuffs and leg restraints. So I have heard that you take your role not only as as a judge very seriously, but in particular your role as a boss to your law clerks. Uh, that is something that you in particular take very seriously. What does that mean exactly? And uh, how does that manifest itself? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's funny. I, I, the very seriously thing is, is kind of what's funny about that. Yeah. So I don't know. I I will say that ever since I became a boss, as really like we talked about going from deputy to, to solicitor general, like to, to me, it seems like lawyers as a general matter are kind of bad bosses. You know, I wanted to be a good boss. And so I spent a lot of time like reading about how to be a good boss and how to manage people and how to help people with their careers and things like that. And you know, I'd like to think that over time I'm getting better at that. But, you know, once again, like this, these are not legal things that you're trained in, right? But there are good and bad ways to manage people and there are good and bad ways to kind of manage, I think, judicial chambers. You know, one of the things that I'm proudest of, I guess I would say, when people ask me, like, what are you proud of from your career? I think the right answer, the one that, you know, if I'm not just like thinking about some case that I won, like the right answer is that I'm proud of the people that I've mentored and that I've helped with Mm -hmm. their careers. And that, you know, goes all the way back to private practice, right? 
And so I try to bring that to my chambers and I try to establish a mentor-mentee relationship with my law clerks and try to teach them what I know. And ultimately, you know, I'm, you know, unless something unusual happens, I'm going to be in this position for the rest of my life. And what I think will make that kind of fun and interesting is to see what my law clerks do with their lives Mm -hmm. uh, after they leave and and the things that they accomplish. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of my mentality about being a boss is to try to be a mentor and to try to teach. And I guess one other point, I guess on this is that, you know, the way salaries work right now in private practice is that my law clerks are giving up quite a bit in money to work for me for a year. And I expect a lot of them. I mean, I expect them to do a good work and to work hard. And so I think one of the sort of sort of implicit deals in that bargain is that they won't come to me, just work for me for a year and then leave. Um, but that there'll be a relationship that's formed, uh, that, you know, uh, hopefully is a positive relationship for both of our lives going forward. Mm-hmm. So that's anyway, that's what I try to do in, in my chambers, at least. Have you established any uh, traditions with your clerks? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm still relatively new, um, but we do here, – here's what I kind of tell them when they come in as I say, look, I, I want – I don't want to be your best friend that's hanging around you all the time, uh, but I don't want to be like a distant figure that you never get to see. And so a lot of the things that I do with my clerks are trying to like be in that medium zone, you know. Mm-hmm. I want them to have their own lives and not feel like I'm kind of like hanging around all the time. So we always have a, a dinner, like a welcome dinner at my house at the kind of the beginning of the clerkship year. We always have kind of a summer – uh, event at uh, a family lake house uh, in the summer. There are certain things we do at like different sittings as far as going to restaurants and things like that, that I think have become traditions. But not nightclubs in the Miami. Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely, definitely not sticking our heads in nightclubs in, in Miami. And then we go to lunch once a week on Monday, always, always on Monday. Do you keep in your chambers any mementos from your prejudging career? Oh, I do. Yeah, I've got quite a few. I've got, so like I said, I argued cases in the United States Supreme Court, and I was also just kind of on merits cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't know whether you know this. I mean, this is like a D.C. lawyer thing, so you probably do, but the Supreme Court gives you like a little feather quill at council table at the Supreme Court, like a quill pin. So I've got all my my feather quill pins from Supreme Court practice. I've got my Supreme Court briefs, most of my Supreme Court briefs. Another thing that I kept too, so I, you know, as you go through your career, you develop like different ways about doing things. And I developed a way of preparing for oral argument where I would make these like trifold manila envelope folders and kind of like that you could open up at the podium and I would have like one page that always said my opening spiel, like a middle page that responded, that had, I had like written responses to questions and the right hand was always like in really small font, like record sites. Hmm. And so I, I started keeping those. And so I've got about, I don't know, 15 or 20 of those like manila envelopes from my arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court and other courts. And I've also got some like little knickknacks, like I've got the the top one of my, one of the cases I worked on was about illegal gambling devices, and so I've got like this like slot machine top that after those devices were destroyed, like for some reason I picked up this little like spinny light thing from the slot machine and kept it, and I've got a few other like random stuff like that. So, Judge, you've been a judge now for five years. How do you find it on the whole better than expected? <laughs> 
Yeah. So I will say one of one of the things that I that made me think like I did not want to be a judge when I was a law clerk. One, I just wanted to be a lawyer. But two, you know, it seemed kind of boring. You know, I mean, it really did, right? You kind of sit in your office and you write all day. You know, when I was a law clerk, I'll never forget this. When I was a law clerk, I had a phone in my office that never rang. No one ever called me, right? <laughs> I will say, I think being a judge is a lot more interesting and exciting than I thought it was from kind of my law clerk days. One of the things that I didn't really appreciate was the interaction that you have with your colleagues on the Court of Appeals. You know, as a law clerk, you don't really see your judge pick up the phone and call one of his colleagues and talk about an opinion or run something by them. But that happens a lot. There's actually a lot of interaction with other judges on the on the court and things like that. That's been really, really neat and really different than I thought it would be. You know, I will say it's it's sort of a negative that you don't have the exciting Deputy Marshal runs into your office. What do we do with this guy? But there's also a nice benefit to not have that kind of stuff happen too on the Court of Appeals. So all in all, I found I found it's great. It's 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 a job. I think that it's one that I think like I. It's a good mix of I think I can do a good job at it, and I think it's also a good job to have. Well, Judge, one final question for you: If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead. Who would it be and what would you talk about? Yeah, so I will have to take the living ones out of this, I guess, since they are my bosses now and just go with the dead ones who can't be offended if I either say or do not say them. So a guy who I've always thought was really interesting and I'm in a courthouse named after him is Hugo Black, who was a Supreme Court justice from Alabama. The thing – I think a lot of things are really interesting about this guy that I would really like to talk about. I don't – you know, your listeners – probably know something about him, but maybe not a lot. But he was uneducated. He did not graduate from college. He did not go to law school. He educated himself in the 1930s as when he became the, on the Supreme Court. So this wasn't, you know, like Abraham Lincoln. This was, you know, when people went to law school. But he educated himself. He tried thousands of cases, including some really high-profile cases for his day in Alabama. He, he really made his name as an amazing trial lawyer. And then he became a senator from Alabama. One of the things I'd like to talk to him about, frankly, is about going from the Senate to the Supreme Court and going from being a trial lawyer to a Supreme Court justice. I think that's such a fascinating transition that you really don't see people make anymore. Mm-hmm. Somewhat more common at the time. But anyway, it just seemed like an, kind of an interesting guy that I, I, I would – I could see sitting down and having a conversation with him about how mm-hmm. things have changed and how they've stayed the same and you know what it was like in the, in the 1930s trying cases. Neat. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, too. You've got a great podcast. I listen to it uh, whenever I can. So thanks for what you're doing. All right, Zach, for trivia this week, in honor of Justice O'Connor, I thought I would do Justice Sandra Day O'Connor trivia. Well, I just read a few pieces about her after her passing, so (laughs) we'll see uh, how closely I paid attention. (laughs) This might be a cakewalk, but all right, I'll start you off with an easy one. Justice O'Connor was sworn in on September 25th, 1981. Which justice did she succeed? I think that was Justice Potter Stewart. Well done. Absolutely right. Thank you. All right. Number two. This one, I, you know, I think if you, if you weren't a Supreme Court nerd, like I know you are, this would be a hard one. But, uh, we'll, we'll, but uh, since you are, I, I expect you get this. 
at Stanford Law School. Sandra Day O'Connor was on the Stanford Law Review under editor-in-chief, who later became a federal judge. <laughs> I also hear he was a Gilbert and Sullivan fan, uh, <laughs> maybe a one-time paramour of, uh, of uh, <laughs> the future Justice O'Connor. You, you, uh, uh, you, you know but, this very well. But I think this was uh, Chief Justice William <laughs> Yes, that's right. Actually, and you, you stole my next trivia question, which was when at Stanford Law School, Sandra Day O'Connor turned down a marriage proposal from a man who would later become a federal judge. All right, question number four. Justice O'Connor was the 23rd Chancellor of the College of William and Mary. She was preceded in that role by another historical figure who just passed away. Well, I wouldn't have known this if I wasn't just reading about Justice O'Connor and her life and career, and also the life and career of Henry Kissinger. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. So she succeeded him. It's such a small world of sort of the great figures, you know? Yes. All right. Justice O'Connor wrote the majority opinion in this 2003 case, which may or may not have been overruled last term. <laughs> GC, uh, I, I thought I knew it, but you gave it away with your tell oh. there. Uh, Grutter versus Bollinger, I believe. <laughs> it's nice of you to pretend that you didn't know the answer to that. <laughs> I appreciate all the help I can get. Yes, indeed. Grutter versus Bollinger, of course, was the uh, case upholding the use of race in uh, college admissions on the basis of diversity, adopting Justice Powell's separate opinion in Backey. And we, we had, what, four justices in Students with Fair Admissions say that Grutter was overruled. We had Kavanaugh say it was expired on its own terms. You know, I can count to five. I think Grutter's dead one way or another. We can hope so. <laughs> All right. Number six. Which case? At least we can celebrate Planned Parenthood versus Casey. <laughs> that one's certainly got. So. Yes, indeed. All right, number six. In which case did Justice O'Connor famously write that a state of war is not a blank check for the president when it comes to the rights of the nation's citizens? So I'm thinking it's one of the uh, post 9 11 uh, cases that the court uh, heard. And so. I don't know, GC, but I would assume it's uh, one of the ones involving uh, Hamdi or Boumediene or one of those types of cases. Well done. It was, in fact, Hamdi. Okay, well done. great. All right. And last question. Returning to uh, Sandra Day O'Connor's early life, shortly after graduating law school, she served as a civilian attorney in this European country with the United States Army Quartermaster well, I'm glad I read my uh, Justice O'Connor profile before coming on. <laughs> Again, wouldn't have known this without it, uh, but I believe she was stationed in Germany. Yes, uh, well done. Yeah, well done. Clean sweep, Zach. Well done. I won't get used to it, but I'll take it when I can get it. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to SCOTUS 101 and for joining us for this special SCOTUS 101 on the road episode. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.